be a couple of seconds. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the first Monday of the month, which means it's time for Monday with the McDougals. And today, Dr. McDougal is going to be talking about an article he recently had published in the Frontier Journal. It's about the role of a starch-based diet in solving existential challenges for the 21st century. And he's going to update us on receiving the Luminary Award from the Plantrician Conference just a few weeks ago. Please welcome him back to the show. You've been very busy. I have. Well, you know, I have, and, and, and AJ, I tell you, I, I just, I feel like in the last uh, couple of weeks, you know, I've really come to a, a, a landmark in my career. You know, I, I have put together 55 years of medical practice, of studying, of research, of conclusions, et cetera. I put all that together in the last couple of months. And, you know, I hope this is the beginning and not the end. I can just tell you that. It worries me a little bit. Uh, well, I finished a, a five-part presentation called McDougal's Medicine, A Challenging Second Opinion, which of course is a continuation of my national best-selling book, which was published in 1984. But it's, uh, it consists of, let's see, four or five lectures, I guess. Anyway, there's one on um, nutrition, there's one on breast cancer, there's one on heart disease, there's one on diabetes, there's one on obesity. So it's five lectures. And they're, you know, they're, they're 10 hour lectures, but I couldn't get it any shorter. I mean, they're two hours each, 10 hours total. Anyway, it's uh, basically the way I practice medicine. And anybody who has any medical interest at all, whether you're a patient or a doctor, I mean, this is it, folks. It ain't going to get any better. I put it together. And then on September 11th of this year, AJ and I met in, in Palm Desert. And it was the first live event that I've been to in four years. But it was important to me. It was important to me. Not necessarily because I was being honored after you know, my career, but I got to see all these wonderful people I've known for the last 40 years. And we got together and we talked and we laughed and you know, kind of came up to date on our progress. And I got this award, <clears throat> which you know, I'm very proud of. It's only, only the third award that I've received in my career. And one was from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. The other was from the state of Hawaii, the senators in Hawaii. Appreciated the work I did in Hawaii. And this one right here, isn't it beautiful? This is a picture it, of what do you think? It's with potatoes. And it's it looks yeah. it, it looks so the artist is incredible, whoever did it. Incredible. Just absolutely incredible. Anyways, um, and then so it was a big deal. But I had a lot of fun that weekend and I, I gave a presentation that I'd like you to watch. Okay, uh, it's about the 55 years I've spent and the, the high points and low points of my career. And it's what doctors and dietitians and uh, you know and anybody who's interested in health needs to know as far as uh, dietary therapy, diet therapy. That's what it's all about, folks. It's diet therapy. It's fixing the food to fix the problems. And uh, I put together enough evidence from my four mentors. You know, my mentors, uh, <clears throat> Dennis Burkett who turned me on to uh, this whole thing. I went to a noontime conference. Mary and I were in a very serious relationship. We were in, engaged to be married and lived in a small, small apartment in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I went off to work this 
one day and I attended a conference. Uh, it was held at noon. There was a guy there, you know, I didn't care. His name was Dennis Burkett, and he'd uh, come to Grand Rapids, Michigan, because uh, he wanted to encourage Kellogg Food Company, which was in Battle Creek, just a few miles from Grand Rapids. He wanted to encourage them to put more fiber in their cereals. And so uh, he stopped off at Blodgett Hospital uh, just as a courtesy to offer to the, to the medical audience uh, his work, what he'd seen over the years. And uh, Dennis Burke was a surgeon trained in Borough, Scotland, who went to Africa and spent, uh, he spent uh, 14 years as the head of ministries of health, overseeing, uh, I think it was 17 years he was there, overseeing 1,000 hospitals and 10 million people. And Dennis Burke, as a lecturer, you know, I'll never forget it. I just sat there in awe. Because he told me, and I was very frustrated at that time because I'd go to these noontime conferences. All they talk about is signs and symptoms and genes and, you know, nothing you could do for the patient to make a difference except for manage them and make their numbers look better, maybe relieve some symptoms. And I really didn't even think I should be a doctor. I, I just didn't get it. But Dennis Burke had told me what caused disease, and it was his experience in in Africa, he uh, was taking care of all these people. He was head of the ministries of health. You know, 10 million people, 17 years, 1,000 hospitals. And he told me, he said, he said uh, because he was only talking to me. I mean, the other 99 people in the room, I don't know where they were. But Dennis Burkett was talking to me. And he told me, he said, uh, in, in rural Africa, where they ate a starch-based diet, they ate the McDougal diet. He didn't identify it as the McDougal diet back then, but... Believe me, it was the McDougal diet. Why? Because I copied it off his work. Anyway, um, he told me that he uh, he was taking care of population of people who had no breast cancer, no prostate cancer, no colon cancer, no hemorrhoids, no diverticulosis, diverticulitis, uh, pulmonary embolus, blood clots, you know, in the legs. He told me that in 17 years they found one, one, one case of gallbladder disease. In our population, as many as 40% of women in their 40s have gallstones. He found one case. One heart attack guy who went to London to train and, of course, ate the, the Western diet in London, came back to Uganda, Africa, and had a heart attack. Says it was the food. <laughs> How strange to say it was the food. And you have to realize uh, next to this conference was a morning conference where they talked about atherosclerosis. You know, the artery disease of the arteries all plugged up. And the lecturer, I don't recall who it was, not important, he, he suggested that this might be a reversible disease. And there was a hush that went through the audience. This guy's a quack. That's the way they were thinking back then. This was uh, back in, in 19, uh, 1971. Anyway, Gensberger changed my life. Uh, you know, I realized that food was important, finally, and that people didn't have to be sick. Well, I finished medical school, and you know the story, Mary and I went to Hawaii, and I had this wonderful plantation experience where my first, second, third, and fourth generation patients had a different pattern of disease. The first generation who lived on rice and vegetables, you know, very little meat, no dairy, were trim, healthy, hardy, hardworking in their 80s and 90s. Their kids who learned the Western diet got fatter and sicker. And I was taking care of 5,000 of these people for three years. 
And what I decided was the diet of the first generation, you know, the rice and vegetables, was the, the reason they were healthy. And the reason the kids were fat and sick is they learned the American diet. Big deal, right? You say, anybody could figure that out. Well, you know, it seemed like I was the only one to figure that out back in those days. Anyway, uh, after three years of plantation service, I went back into training and decided that I was a really incompetent doctor. I really felt that way about myself because my patients never got better. You know, pushed drugs all day long. They never got better. And I blamed it on myself. So I went back to become a good doctor and I took a program in internal medicine, which is what I am now. I'm a board certified internist and I learned how to practice good medicine, but I never learned how to get people well. So uh, frustrating to say the least. And uh, about that time, you know, after I came to the conclusion, the problem wasn't mine. The problem was the system didn't work. You, you can't cure dietary diseases with blood pressure pills, cholesterol pills, constipation pills, pain pills. You just don't do that. Seems obvious, doesn't it? I know you think this is really, really simple stuff. It's really simple. You know, the truth is simple and easy to understand. Anyway, about that time, I heard a, a, a set of audio tapes it was given to me by a friend. I think it was probably four or six tapes. And I believe those tapes are on my website. You can listen to them. Uh, they're the Nathan Pritikin tapes. Just go to drmcdougall.com, put in Nathan Pritikin. You can see a series of audio tapes. That may be the series that I heard. And I couldn't believe it. I, I, you know, I could have been in tears listening to this man talk about the things that I've discovered on my own. You know, there were populations of people who weren't overweight, didn't have diabetes. I was taking care of them. They were my first generation Filipinos, Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans. So, uh, you know, the fact that somebody else, even though he was an engineer, somebody else had seen the same things that I'd seen and more. I, say, I, I probably was in tears that night. Anyway, I didn't feel like the Lone Ranger anymore. And uh, I started to get to know more about Nathan Pritikin. And I got to know him personally. He actually visited our home. We had served dinner to him and his wife. And he couldn't believe it, how good the food was. <laughs> I said, well, this is the way we eat. And uh, you know, we went to a couple of lectures together, spent a couple of days together. We had, we had a nice relationship. In fact, it was such a nice relationship between Nathan Pritikin and I that he wrote the only forward to any book. He was asked to write lots of endorsements or forwards to books. And there's only one book that he would agree to do that for, and that was the McDougall Plan. And he wrote an introduction which talked about the difference in our dietary programs and how someday it would be determined which was better, but they were similar enough that obviously they both worked. He included a little low-fat dairy and a little bit of once a week, you got a couple ounces of animal flesh. Uh, but that was the, the main difference. And, you know, my, my point of view was that, yeah, you, you'll get well on a pretty good diet, but I think what we teach is a lot easier to stick to. Not only do we have better food, it tastes better. And we, I proved that, uh, Nathan Pritikin, in fact, in his second book, The Pritikin Promise, he wrote an endorsement, an acknowledgement, a thank you to John and Mary McDougall for their help. It wasn't John and Mary McDougal. It was Mary McDougal. She gave him 100 recipes for her book. Anyway, then after that, the food started to taste good. It's a pretty good program. But uh, I did an hour lecture, the only lecture that is ever recorded in Nathan Pritikin. And I did it. I took him down to the public broadcasting station in Honolulu, and I sat him down. And that interview is uh, uh, on my website. It's my February 2013 newsletter. You can watch the whole hour. Or you can go to my January 2013. 
13 notes. Let me watch a whole hour I did on Dennis Burkett. Do it. You know, I just put a little segment in this uh, in this introduction. If you enjoyed listening to the short segments of my mentors, then <clears throat> explore because I have hours of information on them and direct videos on all of them except for Walter Kempner. Anyway, uh, we talked about Nathan Pritikin and made some really important points during the lecture. And I know you enjoy it. I really expect you to, to listen to the lecture. You know, usually when I get done with a lecture, I think to myself, oh, I just blew that. You know, I forgot to tell them this and I didn't do that. And I just got these slides. I just am so tough on myself. I got done with this lecture and I felt pretty good. And then I sat down and watched it myself. And I said, you know, John, you're probably not going to get any better. You're not flawless, but you're probably not going to get any better. So I hope you take the trouble to watch it. It's, uh, it's in the chat. And then we talked about Walter Kempner. We talked about Roy Swank and Walter Kempner. And those are also beautiful stories that I could tell you, but I won't burden you with that anymore. And uh, then I talked to, uh, to the audience about whether or not people can change and whether we can save the world. Ladies and gentlemen, the world is on the brink of destruction. No matter how much you bury your head, wherever, I don't know where that happens to be, uh, open your eyes, we're in big trouble. So the question is, is uh, are we going to have a future of wars like Nathan Pritikin talked about and changing our diet during the wartime? Are we going to do it that way? Are we going to be forced to change? Or can we do it like other populations have done for thousands of years, like Dennis Burke talked about the rural Africans? Can we introduce the diet for human beings and change all of our social problems? Everything will change if we did that. We have a chance, and we as professionals, we need to take this opportunity. And I, and I talk to all you folks out there. Uh, if you have any way of influencing what goes on in the world, do it. You know, it's just talking to your neighbors. You know, if you know somebody at 60 minutes or whatever, uh, you know, talk, talk to them and spread the good news because it's not going to happen any other way. Put your efforts into it. But I was talking to this very, very sophisticated audience on September 11th, the conference that Chef AJ was at. And, and these are professionals that are interested in food. And I challenge them with the fact that their only talent is food. You know, they don't know how to build Teslas and they don't know how to put up windmills, but they know about food. So, you know, rather than changing careers at this stage of their life, why don't you just get with it for what's going to happen in the future? And, uh, you know, as far as I can, I'm concerned, uh, doctors going to have to think a lot about dietitians too, about the future in the sense that if people are forced to change their diet or they do it willingly, you know, Pritikin versus Burkitt, what will happen is uh, the diseases that I treat will go away. There'll be no more obesity, no more type 2 diabetes, no more rheumatoid arthritis, no more constipation. I'll go away. So what are these doctors going to do? Well, you know, they can treat the remaining. There'll probably be enough fat kings and queens. In other words, you know who I'm talking about, the rich people. There'll probably be enough rich people for a few doctors to treat them for their opulence. But, you know, the common person is not going to be dealing with this anymore. They'll be dealing with other problems, and I don't want to get into them. But believe me, I, you know, there's there's some possibilities for some serious things happening that would keep doctors busy, which anyway, uh, that was the presentation. And again, you know, uh, if you if you like the things I've done in the past, take the trouble to watch the Plantrition Conference. It was a good conference. Chef AJ was there. Do you want to add anything, Chef? 
Well, I guess I thought your lecture was spectacular and it's in the show note in the chat if they want to watch it. And I'm curious, Dr. McDougall, you said this was your third award. What were the first two? Well, I got the uh, life, excuse me, lifestyle, uh, life, lifetime achievement award from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which is an organization that I was one of the founding members for. We, we put together John Kelly and I and Wayne Dysinger and you know, a few other people that really deserve credit, but I can't recall at the moment. We put together this uh, new college. It was mainly John Kelly's work. You know, I just helped. I happened to have a little extra money at that time. So I kept the uh, organization financially solvent during those early days. Anyway, we've we've kind of parted ways in the sense that I think they, they think I'm too darn radical. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm, I'm still here to teach them dietary therapy whenever they're ready. Anyway, they finally got around to honoring me, and Hans' deal was very important in that honor, as, uh, as well as a lot of my other friends. That was at the, I believe it was September 2019, American College of Lifestyle Med uh, Medicine Conference in Orlando. So that was uh, the other one. The other one I got was uh, from the state of Hawaii. The state of Hawaii gave me uh, some kind of recognition award. I have to look it up. I've got it. I've got it around. <laughs> And uh, anyway, I got a plaque stating they very much appreciated what I did for the citizens of Hawaii during my during my years there. We were there for 15 years. I did a lot of things. I got the informed consent law on breast cancer passed so that doctors had to tell women the truth about breast cancer. And they were lying to them and they were getting mutilated with mastectomies. So I got that passed. I worked on a school lunch program. So I, you know, I had a radio show there for my whole 15, pretty much my whole 15 years. Not, not I don't know, maybe 10. <laughs> One of the more popular shows in Honolulu. So I was, a, I was depending upon where you stood on the arguments, I was either a real pain in the ass or I deserved an award. I got an award. But anyway, those are the only three, three times I've received any recognition. It, you know, it, it, it's okay. I really would like to see the work that Mary and I and now Heather have done and are doing makes a difference. And, you know, awards are, are nice, I suppose. But really seeing any individual person get better is a, is a bigger reward to me than getting a plaque. You know, have you, you know, get off your diabetic pills and your blood pressure pills and your cholesterol medication and lose that extra whatever pounds. And to really get control of your health, I mean, I, I feel good. I got a reward. And I get to do that all the time. I get, in fact, we have probably 50, 60 people showing up here next Friday. Sold out, by the way, the program sold out. Uh, that we're going to be able to work with. And Mary and I and Heather and Doug Lyle and Jeff Novick and the rest of the crew, we're going to be really excited about uh, talking to these folks and helping them to get better, watching them get better. Of course, with every program, with every program, we have uh, we have people who are brought there kicking and screaming. They didn't want to come, but a well-meaning spouse or friend made it happen. And that's always fun, too, to get to see people's minds change. And the contesting folks out there that, you know, want to challenge me a little bit. I like that. You know, I, I don't learn otherwise. So I love to be challenged. Anyway, that's the that's the, the ceremony. Mary and I had a wonderful time. Thank you very much, Scott Stahl. The rest of the folks that allowed us to be at this presentation, good time. Uh, by by 
some coincidence, uh, a scientific paper in the journal Frontiers, I think it came out last week. And, and it's an article I've been working on for over three years, and I have uh, been rejected for publication many times. But I was finally accepted for publication, and you have that article. Uh, Chef AJ will give you the link. It's about it's about what we could do uh, as far as our future goes in terms of dietary change. And you've heard me give this lecture before, so I'm going to try and be really brief. But I want you to read the article. It's like two and a half pages. And I put a lot of work into writing it to make have it make sense to flow. Uh, you know, I'd like you to send this to everybody you know. It's open access. You know, in other words, you don't. There's no copyright restrictions that keep you from sending it to friends and relatives, and your medical doctor, and you know, the person who believes otherwise. I think it'll make an impression on them. What this article talks about is change, and <clears throat> how diet is so important, and what's going to happen in the future. Currently, we're dealing with comorbid problems, uh, which is what you and, you and I have been talking about for years. We were talking about your obesity, your diabetes, your arthritis, your bowel problems. These are comorbid, morbid being dead. You know, these are the things that lead up to death. Comorbid, pre-morbid, death. You know, so we've been talking about this for, I don't know, I've been at it for 47 years. So however long you've been listening to me, I've been talking about for 47 years, is that you can cure comorbid diseases. Often, pretty much 100% of the time, like obesity. Do you think I could cure everyone who's obese? I'm like, come on. Come on. What if I locked you in a cell and just gave you a bushel basket full of potatoes two or three times a day? What do you think? I don't care if you're four or 500 pounds. What do you think is going to happen in a year, year and a half? Okay, well, anyways, 100% curable. Type 2 diabetes, 100% curable, et cetera. So, you know, we've been dealing with comorbid problems. Um, what, it, what it turns out is that comorbid really stuck its, uh, its beautiful head up in the air where we, we developed the pandemic of COVID-19 when that happened upon us. Because what was found early even in the disease, and which is so, so well known these days, is that if you have comorbid conditions, you're more likely, how much more likely? Well, 12, 12 times more likely to die and six times more likely to end up in the hospital if you have comorbid conditions and you catch COVID-19. Would you like me to repeat that? 12 times the chance of dying and six times the chance of going to the hospital if you are overweight, diabetes, kidney problems, heart problems, you have comorbid conditions. Well, we know how to cure comorbid conditions. So we've taken you to a, from a category of rapid progression to, you know, to drowning on a ventilator. Rest, uh, ventilator, you're drowning on a ventilator. That's no fun. I've seen it happen too many times. You know, you're, you're getting yourself out of that category where if you get the COVID-19, you know, if all goes well as intended, you're going to end up having a bad flu. And staying home and getting back to work. But if you've got comorbid conditions, anyway, the point being is there are going to be more pandemics coming. They're not going to stop. All right. They're just going to get worse. And we have two things that you can do. You know, one is you can take care of uh, public health measures, masks, hand washing, social distancing. And the second is you can become healthy. And how do you become healthy? You fix the problem. What's the problem? It's the food. Get rid of your comorbid conditions. 
And it so happens that when it comes to the environment, you have the same importance, maybe more so than the other two conditions. Uh, it's because the animal agriculture business contributes to more than half of the greenhouse gases. And as an individual, you can reduce your CO2 production as much as 80% overnight by becoming a vegan. So you could do this as an individual. I, I know you're trying. I mean, you're very concerned. You're turning off the light switches and you're recycling and you're, you're going to buy an electric car next time you have a chance. I know you're trying, but the impact is, is small, not insignificant, but small compared to what you can do by changing your food. So you want to protest? You want to make a difference? Again, you know, get out there and tell people, tell your friends and relatives. So what I've done for you in summary, before we get on to whatever you'd like to talk about, what I've done for you is I've provided a introductory lecture that introduces, that tells you about me and my philosophy, who I am, you know, what I believe in, et cetera. And that's the, uh, the presentation I gave at the Plantation Conference. Uh, share it with people. Tell them they don't have to watch the, uh, the, the award, no big deal. But if they get through the lecture part, they're going to want to stay for the questions and answers because after 35 minutes of lecturing, the question and answers are, were as if entertaining, if not more entertaining for the folks in the audience. And we went on for two hours. But anyway, I, I, I set that up for you as an introduction. I mean, who could refuse to listen to 35 minutes of McDougal's history? Especially so it's just so darn entertaining, huh? So get, get the, the people around you to watch that to start out with. And then, you know, once you get their attention, take them to a higher level of, uh, of concern for others and show them the paper that I wrote on climate change. It was published in Frontier. Show them that. And then if you get really people who are interested because they're medical people and want to develop a practice where people get well instead of being managed, where people really get cured disease, if you'd like to do that, I've got this series of five lectures, 10 hours. McDougal's Medicine, Challenging Second Opinion. So, you know, I've got a round out, rounded out presentation for you to present to your friends and relatives and the politicians out there and the attorneys and a lot of other people. As I mentioned, what's going on in terms of medical care is criminal behavior. Well, that's rough for me to say. I've been saying that for 47 years. What are you taking? You ruin people's lives to make money. Crooks do that. And, and what it comes down to is the, the medical doctors, by and large, there are some really important exceptions who know the truth and, and have guarded against the influence of money. You know, what, what happens is uh, for the sake of making money, the drug companies, even though the research says it doesn't work, you know, for surgeons to cut off people's breasts and for other doctors to send people for colonoscopy, even though it doesn't work, it's proved beyond a doubt, doesn't work, they still try and convince you to do this. And they take your money and they cause you to suffer. That's criminal, okay? And someday somebody's gonna take this up as a lawsuit, just like they did against the tobacco industries. Remember Congress, Congress almost put seven representatives from the tobacco industry in jail like 20 years ago because they lied to the public. Okay, folks, show some, you know what? These people in the food companies and probably a good share of them in the medical business need to be sued. 
they just come in front of Congress for what they've done. They've done far more harm to the public than the tobacco industry or the alcohol industry or the heroin industry or the cocaine industry. You want to talk about damage, it's the food industry to you, to your family, to your community, to your country, and to your planet. These people are criminals because they know the difference. You know, we're going through a lot of a lot of illegal issues this, these days with our politics. I'm learning about it. I'm learning that you've got to understand that you're doing wrong when you commit wrong to end up in jail. Well, you know what? I've got the evidence that they're doing wrong and they know they're doing wrong. And you know what? Maybe not jail, but maybe, 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 maybe cardiologists ought to be learning how to drive taxis because it would be my goal to get people to stay in a starch-based diet. And then there'll be virtually no atherosclerosis or heart disease. It doesn't exist on a starch-based diet. Endocrinologists, they'll be out of business too. No type 2 diabetes, you'll starve to death. Obesity specialists, you'll starve to death. Can you imagine, can you imagine selling Ozempic in China before 1980? Before 1980, there was virtually no obesity or overweight problems. There was no type 2 diabetes, which is Ozempic is used for, weight loss and diabetes. How, how successful would Ozempic be in China before 1980? Now you can sell it. Now you can sell it because 12% of the population has diabetes and probably a similar number are obese. Half are pre-diabetic. You see, they've opened up markets all over the world. It's just money. But, you know, people who steal, they go to jail. People who do other people harm, they go to jail. All right, Jeff AJ, I, I think it's it's my attitude. It's gotten really, really, really pointed. <laughs> Dr. McDougall, would you like to answer some questions, even though you've probably answered them hundreds of times before? Okay. Okay. Well, well why, 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 why don't we ask people to get have a reaction to what I've said? Well, do, do you have that kind of intimacy with the public? I mean, I just said that I've spent 55 years putting together information in books and on video that w should change the world if people watched them. I just said that. Do you think I sound like an egotistical SOB? Whatever. What am I doing? What's your motivation, McDougal? People are saying thank you for all your help. Thank you for your hard work. You look very handsome. Yeah, all right. Well, anyway, I, I I know I'm talking to the choir, Chef AJ, and but you folks, you all have friends and relatives, and don't quit. Just like I so told the medical people at the uh, the plantation conference on September 11th, as I said, look, don't back down. You're right, and they're wrong. And I have all the evidence to support both points of view. What they're doing is wrong. And you know, once you gain the confidence that you're on the right side of the problem, then you should move forward with strength and all the talent you have. Okay, they answered any questions. Okay, and I'll keep reading the comments. And, 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 and by the way, let me just put in a couple of plugs. Uh, every Sunday night at five o'clock Pacific time, Mary and I and Heather, and usually Chef AJ's in the background, I think, we get together for a YouTube free broadcast to answer questions. 
And you send the questions in and we get to a lot of questions and probably most of them. So that's a good format. If you want to have friends and relatives uh, be introduced to Mary and I and Heather, they can do that. They'll find out we're, we're not such bad people and that we are relatable. And that if John and Mary and Heather can do it, you know, you can do it too. So every, every Sunday night, five o'clock Pacific time on our YouTube channel, you just plug in McDougal channel. And there we are. Yeah. But but yes, the other thing I want you to know is we're going to have to add more programs because we're, we're getting overfilled. We're not able to take everybody in that, you know, that, uh, well, there needs our help. That's 330, billion, 330 million people in the U.S. alone. But the, the ones that are interested in getting in the program, and so we're going to have to add more programs. But the next one, which is next Friday starts, uh, it's sold out. But as Heather pointed out to us uh, last night, she said, you know, it, whenever you want to get started, we'll start with you. We'll get your, your support specialist in contact with you pretty much that day. Dr. Lim will do his uh, history on you and start you pretty much that day. You know, we'll make some restrictions as far as reducing medications until the 12 days starts. But even though the next program is not till January, you know, we can at least get started. Uh, started working with you like soon, like probably in the next 48 hours. <laughs> All right. But anyway, that's what's going on. And uh, what's going on with you guys? Well, the usual, mostly, you know, centered around disease reversal, weight loss. There's a nice comment in the chat from Marlary. I'm so glad you got the well-deserved recognition for your work. You've helped so many people. In three weeks, my diabetes has changed, says Lindsay. So people love you. They are, um, you know, Dan's asking, well, who, who, what should people do to make the greatest impact? Who should they contact? Well, yeah. okay. First of all, friends and relatives, people you love, don't give up on them. Just because the first time they think you're crazy, they could never do this, it's unreasonable. You keep working on them. And it took me... Well, it took me over two years to change my diet back in 1976-77. Well, actually, I started probably in 1972. So it took me a couple of years to change my diet. It took me a couple of years to save my father, who died of heart disease 11 years later, and to change my father-in-law, who died of prostate cancer, 23 years after he should have died. So they got 11 and 23 years more life. But I didn't give up on him because, you know, my father really took care of me. He, he was there every time I needed him. And, uh, you know, I felt I owed him the same. And the same thing with Mary's dad. He was always there for her and for us. So we didn't abandon him. Don't, don't do that. People you love keep working at him. And... Uh, those of you who belong to organizations, say Kiwanis Club or you know, some church or, or, or a PTA or some other thing that knits people together and gets them talking and communicating, you know, start out with uh, some individual discussions. Our, our good friends, Elaine and Jerry, they they are in a, um, not, not an assisted living, but a, you know, a transition place where you're you kind of go in a community living and you just move on to assisted living and then memory care, et cetera. Anyway, there's a facility here in our area and they're, they're good friends of ours. They're actually at the Prantition Conference. And what they've done is they, they do a, a meeting every Saturday 
where they invite people. There are, I think, four or 500 people in this one unit. And they get, you know, quite a few people to show up and they talk and they have lunch and they show lectures, not just of mine, but other people's lectures. And, you know, that's something you could do. Uh, you could write your, your representatives, your, you know, your Congress people. You know, someday somebody's going to pay attention and, and this, this tiny little crack's going to open wide. I don't know when or how, but I know we will have a better chance of it happening if we all work toward it. You know, what's, what's being done is wrong. I mean, the, the implications are, are, are personal, they're social, they're existential in terms of survival on this planet. But what else could we put up for stakes? Anyway, uh, you, you, you figured out why. I mean, some of you are musicians out there. You could write songs or if you're playing to an audience you could add a little quip in there remember me when i was as big as lizzo and now look at me i look good well, maybe lizzo looks good too but who knows by the way lizzo was was caught with the dr mcdougall's cup <laughs> so she knows about us all right anyway uh, yeah yeah they're, they're, whatever your talent is if you're a writer you know you write your newspaper do a, a, a letter to the editor uh, you know, whatever, whatever turns you on, comorbid diseases, viral infections, saving the planet Earth, you could do those things. Um, but it's got to become a movement. I don't see how else we can stand up against so much money. But other people have. You know, other people in history have stood up to the powerful, to the rich, to people who are causing harm and destruction to others. This is not unique to the 21st century, not need to the dietary movement. There are all kinds of things that are going on in the world that people are standing up for. They're really important. But we are food people. Who knows more about food than we do? You know, nobody, or at least the truth about food. So, you know, we need to carry that, uh, that torch. And hopefully... Hopefully, and I think it will. I, 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 every time you do not know me for well, probably a long time, but you know, that things have been tough for for me in terms of realizing that the the things that I think should be right never seem to turn out that way. It's very very frustrating. And you know, sometimes I think probably if you talk to Mary about, it, I've I've had like three three or four, maybe ten days that I was depressed in my life. But you know they would be they would be related to the frustration I have and the fact that so much is wrong, and it can't be made right. But lately, when you talk to me, it's different. You know, I watch things that go on on. I, we watch too much news. I watch things that go on on the news, and I say, you know, they're finally getting the cheaters, liars, and polluters. There's a whole new world. You can't cheat and get away with it. Watch the news. You can't lie and pollute and get away with it. Well, I know they still are, you know, it's not been solved overnight, but because of easy mass communication, they can't hide anymore. You know, you, everybody, 80 or 85% of the 8 billion people on the planet have a smartphone. In, in this lecture, I talked to you about how in World War I in Denmark, Three million Danes changed their diet to stay alive and not starve. And all they had to communicate this necessity to avoid 
suffering and starving due to the British blockade that was put up in the North Sea during World War I, they all changed to a diet where they ate the animals' food. Not the animals, but the animals' food. <laughs> and they did that, and all they had was a telegraph. Few people had phones. You know, the kind you call up, you say, hey, Mabel, will you connect me to somebody else? And I don't want a party line. You know, that kind. You probably don't remember those. But it, they're really archaic. And they had the telegraph. Telegraph. And they could just talk to each other. And that's it. And they changed, saved the Danes. They had the, they had the best health they've ever had. There was a 34% reduction in disease in, in Denmark during those three years of World War I. They had the lowest incidence of Spanish flu of any population in Europe. And they did that with a telegraph and a crude phone and, a and some newspapers that were put on the printing press. What do you do for instantaneous news all day long? Excuse me, we can do this. We can change the world. You know how it works. Something goes viral, all kinds of little things that go viral, I'm sure make you upset like they do me. Why in the world did this person get attention for dancing on their left ear or whatever they did? You know, something important like curing diabetes. Well, last night I talked about um, a USA Today article, you know, the newspaper USA Today. They put a week, print a weekend edition. And it's not not you know not as colorful a read as usual during the week, and I enjoy the color and splash of USA Today, and so I keep up with that as well as a few other newspapers. <clears throat> but they had an article about how a lady, uh, she's overweight, the fact that she was a black lady did not, you know, being a person of color is no longer unique to being overweight and sick. But anyways, there's a very high, high uh, incidence of, of diabetes and obesity, higher than among the white population, among the people of color, just the way it is. Anyway, she was a person of color, 52. Her name was Taylor, and she was on oh, three diabetic medications and Ozempic and something for indigestion, a proton pump inhibitor, cholesterol-lowering drug. And she said that she spends her whole day, morning to night, worrying about her diabetes, giving herself shots, taking pills, taking tests, and so on. That's what life of a diabetic is. And she was just tired of it. So it was costing her $25,000 a year, not her, but an insurance company, a year. And uh, she was neglecting her job and her family and everything else just to pay attention to her diabetes. And she said she was going to fight back. But I was looking for the fight back. I got to the last part of the article. I was waiting for the fight. I was waiting for what she was going to fight against. What are, who are you going to who are you going to go out to to win against the drug companies? No, how about the the, the illness you have? Get rid of it. And I did suggest during last night's presentation. I'll offer you the invitation when you ask what you could do. You could read that article and you could figure out how to write Miss Taylor and tell her we'd find a place for her in the next program. The chances are 90%, because we published it, 90% of the time we reduce or stop diabetic medications within 12 days. We have, you know, we're, we're publishing on um, over 2,000 people, or excuse me, close to 2,000 people we're publishing on with diabetes. You know, 10 years of research, 
So I'd love to have Miss Taylor and Miss Ms. Taylor and in, in the program. We, we'd show you in 12 days. Maybe she'd get a re, repeat article in USA Today. I've decided to fight back, not by suing the drug companies for all the side effects and all the money they cost me and wasted and stole from me. I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna fight back by getting well. What, what a thing if, if everybody in the country or the world knew the truth and decided that I'm going to get well. And all I have to do is eat pancakes and oatmeal and waffles for breakfast and hash brown potatoes. And all I got to eat for lunch and dinner is bean burritos, spaghetti and marinara sauce. Mary made a great rice dish last night. It was, uh, I don't know, she, she can talk about it next time she's on the show, but you know, just, just food you love, mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, bean soup. She's got a soup on right now tonight for, for dinner. We'll have bread and look like a white bean soup. Uh, oh, I love Mary's soups. I could just eat soup. I could eat soup for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I think people have. Yeah. I think they all used to. Just had one big pot of soup, stew that everybody ate. And anyway, uh, it would be cool to get that kind of, oh, if we got that kind of attention in the USA Today and, you know, somebody, we just need a crack and we just have to light the light in. That's it. I've been waiting for 50, 47 years. For, I've been in medicine 55 years, but I've been waiting 47 years since I've known the truth and had it well established for that crack to open. It just never has, but it will. It will. The, change, the world is changing and the truth is out. So anyway, I guess the point I was trying to make, Chef AJ and audience, <clears throat> is that uh, you know I I have lots of reasons to be pessimistic. I have lots of things that could keep me up all night long worrying. But I'm not going to do it. Now I'm going to live every day to the best of my ability, and I love to work, so I'm going to work every chance I have. I'll work. You know, it's not like I'm sitting here suffering talking to you. I really love this, so uh, I'm going to you know take the time I have left and. The, functions I have left and enjoy every day and, and bury myself in optimistic ideas. I, I'd like to be around optimistic people. Now, I don't want to be around liars, but people who have some realism, but optimism. I don't need to hear another report about droughts and hurricanes and wildfires and the heat of the planet. I don't need that. I need people talking about what we can do to get us out of trouble. And by the way, I've talked to you about this. And I'm going to mention it, probably shouldn't, but I will. Is that I would like you to visit another website. Because I think there's one tool we need to use to get out of trouble. And that's uh, to use uh, mirrors. You know, mirrors, like the thing you look in the mirror and see if your hair is combed correctly. To reflect sunlight back out into outer space. It's called the Mirror Project, M-E-E-R.org. You'll meet Yi Tao, who's a, well, I'd say become a, it's becoming a friend of mine. And I think this genius has uh, an escape route for us. But we got to start talking about that too. But hey, we're food people. I'm not going to build any mirrors. But I'm here to help you with the food problem. So... Yeah, I don't know. AJ, you got any thoughts on what these people do? I listen, I just want to want to send out a big a big applause to what AJ's done right here at this moment because you know it's hard work for her and Charles to get together like-minded people. You know, you folks are the audience and 
and uh, speakers who have some worthwhile information to bring you. So AJ saw she's doing her part and making a big difference. And she's just a little person. <laughs> no, she's a big person. She's been on Johnny Carson. <laughs> oh, back in the day. Hey, I, I see some really nice comments. One from our mutual friend, Dr. Daryl Woodruff, who says, Dr. McDougall, you are a genius to have figured out the truth about eating starch for health way ahead of others. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us all. And Dixie says, thank you, Dr. McDougall. 10 years ago, I followed your maximum weight loss plan and I lost 75 pounds. I got off high blood pressure, high cholesterol, GERD meds, and I'm no longer pre-diabetic. You can't see these comments, unfortunately, on your screen, but there's so many of them. You know, uh, AJ, that's that's what keeps me going. You know, I've talked to you about my frustration that this is such a powerful message. This would change everything. You know, er everything, politics, war, uh, famine, suffering, probably some negative things would result too. I mean, those those poor dairy farmers and the people who own, own meat processing plants, they'd have to get other jobs. Too bad. Anyway, uh, yeah, I just, it always bothers me that, I, you know, something so powerful has been kept such a secret, but I know why. It's the money. And uh, the fact that the thing that's kept me going is you. You know, these kind of comments, which I've had, you know, placed eye to eye, right to my face. They've told me the same kind of story that you just told of these people who, you know, Mary and I and you and Heather have had a chance to change their lives. And they appreciate it. I, and I get a tremendous amount of enjoyment out of helping individual people. Otherwise, I'd go nuts. I'd go crazy. I'd go, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be so depressed if I if I confronted the actual truth of what's going on and the frustration that I'd probably end up on Prozac. Just kidding. Don't even tell anybody I said that joke. I'm not on Prozac. I may act a little strange sometimes, but I'm not on anything. There was a book called Prozac, Potatoes Not Prozac a long time ago. Do you remember that? I sure do. And it was based on Richard and Judas Wertman, W-R-T-M-A-N, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. They're from MIT. And what they found was that if you ate a high-carbohydrate diet, it relieved depression. <clears throat> yeah, what they did, uh, uh, Richard and Judith Wertman, you can look them up. Why do you think I give you these references? MIT, carbohydrates, mood, look up those terms. Anyway, um, they had shown that when you eat a animal-based diet, you end up preventing tryptophan from moving into the nervous system where the tryptophan turns into serotonin, which relieves depression and makes your life just really easy to deal with. Serotonin, the precursor is tryptophan. And animal amino acids block the passage of tryptophan from the blood into the brain, the spinal fluid. And so Richard and Judith Wortman, they discovered this. And they went and applied that to depression and then to premenstrual syndrome, you know, the, the phase that women feel they go through during their menstrual cycle, emotional changes. Uh, anyway, they became quite famous in that book, Potatoes Rather Than Prozac, came out of that, out of Richard Judith Worthman's work. So, uh, 
if you look at the worldwide statistics, you find that they, the uh, animal food consumption parallels with the depression that occurs worldwide. Yeah. So I think you know a lot of mental illnesses are due to depression, schizophrenia, autism, or excuse me, are due to food, at least in part. But see, that's a part you can control. You can't control your genes. You haven't had much luck with bad, much much chance of changing bad luck or the wrath of God. Come on, give it up. But you can change your food. 100% of the time, you just sit down on the plate and you say, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to eat this. You've done it before. I know. I know you've done it before. You've gotten rid of a bad spouse. Not going to deal with him anymore. Rather be alone or deal with him. Tobacco. I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. Alcohol. You've made that decision. But you need knowledge to know that what you're doing is going to result in you being better off and not harmed. So the food's simple. You got control of it, it costs you nothing. No side effects. Helps everybody. I think so. Except for cardiology, interventional cardiology, you're in trouble. Mark my words, consider it a challenge. I'm going to try and put you out of business. But of course, I've been trying for 47 years and I haven't done it, you know. So don't, don't, you won't lose any sleep over my threat. But if you have any doubt about it, I'm out here to get your job. All right. Okay. So I'm sure you can guess that a very popular topic that people ask you about are potatoes and weight loss. And today is no exception from Sheila. And she wants to know if, well, first of all, her first part of her question is, can she bake them in the oven? She doesn't want to form acrylamides. Right. Well, I don't think baking in the oven is the way, if you're worried about acrylamides, I think it's above 240 degrees Fahrenheit that you have to eat the carbohydrate. And uh, boiling is 212. So if you boil a potato, you're not going to get the acrylamides forming. If you, uh, you know, with a dry fryer or baking or, you know, pan fried or whatever, you're going to make acrylamides. So uh, you, you got the wrong cooking technique. The only way I know that you can get away with not having acrylamide formation is to keep the temperature below 240 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you don't form acrylamides. And besides that, the acrylamides are just, they're a theory. They're a theory that they cause an increased risk of cancer in people. But as far as any practical inf information that supports this, it's not out there. It's laboratory stuff. But of course, you know, it's, it's very popular to hear about acrylamides and they come from potatoes and other carbohydrates. And the reason I think that's really good news is people like to hear good news about their bad habits. So therefore, I can keep eating my steaks, which have no carbohydrate in them. So you don't make acrylamides. But of course, you make nitrosamines and all kinds of other carcinogenic chemicals that we know and other evidence supports them as being initiators and promoters of cancer. But you don't forget that acrylamide now because that proves that I don't have to give up my meat and switch to potatoes. And that's kind of that kind of thinking people have, you know, good news about bad habits. Does microwaving, because she's also saying is microwaving okay? Because she, I guess she doesn't want to boil them because they do taste better baked for sure. I would, I would, I would think a microwave is probably 
the max temperature of the food. I'm just guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing it would be the boiling point because what microwave does is it, it agitates the water molecules in the food, all the molecules, but particularly the water molecules in the food makes them shake really, really vibrantly and that's where you get the heat from. Well, the maximum that you can, you can raise at one atmosphere, the maximum temperature you can raise water at one atmosphere is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Then it becomes a gas. Okay, so I don't think a microwave goes over 212 degrees Fahrenheit. But again, prove me wrong easily. So I, I, I look, we fry our potatoes and dry frying potatoes and Mary, Mary cooks them on a dry skillet and we have baked potatoes all the time. So it's not I'm on my list of things to worry about. Yep. Okay. So she says she's five seven and one hundred and forty seven pounds. Lost one hundred pounds, uh, but oh. she finds, yeah she finds herself hungry at times, and she wants to know if she could have a potato and a half a cup of beans at a meal with veggies and still lose weight, or is it best to limit to half a potato and a half a cup of beans, or just the beans, or just the potato? I, I think if you want to be permanently healthy and you want to have permanent weight loss, that you eat as much as you want of delicious food, which is based on starches with the addition of fruits and vegetables with no added oil. Yeah, you'll lose weight on beans and potatoes. And no, I don't think you have to manipulate them. But I do think you have to guard against being hungry because that's painful. And you'll remember the pain, which will cause you to make bad decisions. You must eat to the full satisfaction of your appetite. I mean, think, let's, let's do a little thing here. What if I, you know, you breathe, uh, you breathe on average 18 times a minute, okay? One minute, 18 breaths, all right? Okay. What if I told you that here on the West Coast, we're concerned about our atmosphere? And we want you to, you're just a visitor. You're from New Hampshire or New York or Virginia. You're just a visitor to the West Coast. And, you know, because uh, we're concerned about our atmosphere, we don't want you taking 18 breaths a minute anymore. You're a visitor. I want you to only take 15 breaths a minute. Okay. Let's start now. So you, you, you mean all you do is think about breathing? You, you mean you can only keep this up for a few seconds without going crazy? Well, come on now. Don't you have willpower? Okay, okay, let's do it with thirst. Okay, you, let's just say you need six glasses of water a day. And I say the West Coast has some water shortage. And so you're allowed only two and a half glasses of water a day. Well, probably after the first day, what do you start thinking about? And that's all you think about. And when you get a hold of that glass of water, you're just gonna drink it, you know, maybe a gallon of cold water just to, to, to relieve the pain and the thought of the suffering you went through. What happens when you deny your hunger drive? You're in pain. And, and the body won't let you alone, just like it wants you to take in enough oxygen and water. It wants you to take in enough energy and nutrients. It's not going to leave you alone. It's called hunger. So, you know, manipulating your food like you're doing, I think, is, is not the right attitude. Uh, I think you ought to eat. I think you ought to pick the category of food. Don't question your hunger drive and eat. I, I realize I've been told, I haven't met them, but there are people who have psychiatric illnesses where they eat to the point where they can even get overweight on a high carbohydrate starch-based diet. 
I've heard about them. I've never seen them, but I've heard about them. So if you're that kind of person, you know, you're the one in 5,000 that can do that. So be it. I can't win all the time, but I'll win with the other 4,999. Because you don't have a psychiatric problem. You have a problem of believing that you can deny. Let me say that again. Believing that you can deny the drives that keep you alive. Why would you design an organism that can deny the fulfilling the drives to keep you alive? It makes no sense. You can't deny them. Or, or you can't deny them without being in pain. That's called dieting. Or you can't deny them without making yourself sick. That's called a low-carb diet that puts you into ketosis. Or you can't deny this drive without taking... Uh, GLP-1 agonists like Wegovy and, and um, what is it called? Wednesday? Anyway, the other weight loss drug we were just talking about. Uh, you know, if you're going to be on these drugs, they're Gila monster, but that I'm sorry, that's why. So um, th that way you make the hunger drive go away. It makes you sick. That's the, 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 the side effects of these drugs, these uh, GLP-1 agonists like Wegovy and the side effects of the drugs are similar to what would happen if you got bit by a Gila monster, which is a, a, a reptile in the Southwest United States. It's got a venom in its lower jaw that makes people, they get bit, you throw up, you develop nausea and diarrhea. Well, guess what happens when you take these shots? In other words, you got a Gila monster bite with a syringe. You get nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and you're too sick to eat. Uh, so you can't beat these drives is what I'm trying to say. So the last questioner's question disturbs me in the sense that she has not come to believe that her hunger drive is correct and that we have identified the correct foods for, for the human being. I believe I've given you adequate evidence that the proper diet for the human being is a diet based on starch. And when I was developing this diet 47 years ago, I started adding things to a basic starch-based diet. And I would add dairy and I would ask the question, did this improve the diet above the harm that was being caused? And every time I added something, be it chicken or fish or beef or dairy or cheese or whatever time I added something, when I added up the points of a positive thing, like, well, that's protein, but there's never been a case of protein deficiency. Well, the protein causes kidney disease and liver disease and bone loss and kidney stones. Oh, okay, dairy's out or pro high protein's out, animal foods are out. Well, how about calcium? I thought, well, I had a little dairy, you know, the Pritikin diet had, had a little dairy in it. So maybe I'll put a little dairy in it. Well, there's no such thing as calcium deficiency. So there's no plus side. Well, how about the dairy? Well, the dairy is whole milk is 50% fat, causes atherosclerosis, heart attack, strokes constipation. I mean, where do you want me to stop? Anyway, well, I ended up with a starch-based diet with fruits and vegetables. That was the best diet there was for you. That's what the science says. That's the conclusion I've come to. And I think you need to start believing it or find other evidence that says otherwise. I mean, good grief. Tell me I'm wrong. You know, cause me to get a little excited and to rethink my, my philosophy. <clears throat> Or 
get with it. Okay. I, I bet I bet that's the longest answer you ever expected from such a short question, huh? No, it was good. It was thorough, and I liked it. Um, here's a question from Henry about the elimination diet on your website, and he says that brown rice and sweet potatoes are listed as allowed, but it doesn't mention white rice or white potatoes at all. Are they allowed, or should they be eliminated and then reintroduced? And do greens such as lettuce and spinach need to be cooked, or can they be eaten raw? Everything needs to be cooked. Everything needs to be cooked because when you cook, you denature the proteins. In other words, you break them into small segments that are least likely to cause an adverse reaction. That's why you cook your fruit, your spinach, your everything, okay? Uh, when it comes to starches, the problem with white potatoes is that some of them are spoiled. They have a toxin called solanine, which may you know, cause some adverse reactions to people that they interpret as not a well-tolerated food. Sweet potatoes don't have that problem. Okay, that's why we don't have white potatoes in it. Uh, as far as white rice and brown rice, go figure. You know brown rice is better for you than white, but you can use white. But you can't use white that you usually buy off the store because it's coated with wheat. It has a cereal coat to it. So see, ah, you have to be real careful when you buy rice because they used to put talc, which is asbestos, on rice until I challenged them. Maybe we'll talk about that someday. Is the fight I got into the rice company back many years ago, and I stopped. I stopped the sale of talc-coated rice in Puerto Rico, California, and Hawaii overnight by me exposing the rice industry for putting asbestos on the rice. Well, they stopped putting asbestos on the rice, and they coat it now with uh, with a, a cereal coat or, or sugar glucose. Anyway, some people are allergic to the cereal. Okay, that's okay. why. And uh, the elimination diet is uh, the question is, and it's open for interpretation. But this is the conclusion I came to: is what are the foods that are least likely to cause you a reaction? And that's why I put those in there. That was my best guess, based upon the research that I was reading and understanding. So I, it's worked out really well. There's, there are many people I've taken care of over the years. And remember, this is the last step before you go to turn north and go on a water fast. This is your last step is the elimination diet. You've tried everything else. You've tried the McDougal diet without, without wheat, barley, rye, in other words, gluten. So use this tool. It's just a tool. And then once you figure out what you're allergic to, then you can eat all the you just avoid those things and you eat all the things you tolerate. And as I say, there have been people who only by applying the tool of the elimination diet were able to get well. And again, that goes back to what I told you, told you many times is when I developed the principles I developed, they were to help the people who were in most trouble. Okay. I, I was I was looking to help the people who were at the end of their life. Who are on? Who had you know lost ninety percent of their heart or ninety percent of their kidneys? People who had you know terrible disease. I wanted them to get well, but what I found out is what I had learned applies to everybody because pretty much everybody's sick, you know, to some degree or another. And you know, I've had experiences with people who like they had massive heart attacks, scheduled for heart surgery, 
You know, that was not enough to cause them to want to change their diet. Really intelligent people. I remember this dentist I saw early in my career. He came to see me for a second opinion. The next time I heard from him, after I spent over two hours talking to him, showing him all the research, the heart surgery doesn't save lives. The next time I heard from him, he was post-op. He went and had the surgery. And of course, I came home and I was very depressed. So I spent so much time with this intelligent man and he went for the surgery. Well, you know, Mary kind of straightened me out right then. She says, uh, got bills to pay, John. Just take the money. And believe me, I have I've learned that along the way. So I try and do good things, but I have bills to pay too. But uh, anyway, the point being here, you have everything set up where you think somebody would make the change. Smart, you know, successful, uh, presented all the information and didn't do it. And then the next person who comes in has got a fourth grade education, you know, uh, taking care of a family of 10, uh, has just a little constipation trouble and they go, I'd love to do this. This is great, Doc. In other words, the problems they were having were significant enough for them. You decide, not me. You decide whether your problems are important enough to make this change. And if you decide they're not, that's you. But I'm not going to present to you a compromise. You know, over 21, you can choose what you want, but you ought to have the truth and the facts. And one of the things I pointed out last night on the show, and I'll tell you right now, is omission of important information is lying. You know, if your doctor knows that these treatments don't work, like, for example, all the studies on angioplasty show no survival benefit. And then your doctor tells you to have heart surgery because you need it. That's an omission of data. That's lying. If you're in the same situation and the doctor fails to tell you that diet will cure your problem or at least benefit, that's lying. That's, that's lying by omission. What are you, you going to do about this? And, and those of you out there who are dispensing information, you ought to just take it to heart. You're lying to your patients by not telling them the whole truth. Just the fact that you don't think it's important, it's irrelevant, it's important. The fact that this surgery does not save lives. I would think what somebody would need to know, don't you? The fact that changing the diet will fix a whole lot of problems. I think they need to know, don't you? Omission is lying. Agreed. Thanks, Dr. McDougall. This is about fibroids. This is from Kim, and she said she hopes you have some advice on how to naturally heat, reduce fibroids to conserve the uterus and fertility. She had a miscarriage at 15 weeks after what was thought to be the results of disintegrating, disintegrating fibroids, have several others, apparently one eight centimeters on top of the fundus, which caused extreme pain and water breaking. Open myectomy is not a good option for us as we want to have children. Right. Well, you know, this you may end up having a myomectomy. In other words, a piece of the, of the fibroid taken out. Enough so that the uterus, the doctor believes the uterus will be more competent to carry a baby. Uh, fibroids are due to cell proliferation of the body of the uterus. Okay, so there are uterine cells that make up this organ, the uterus. The growth of these cells is 
estrogen dependent. So because of the Western diet, because of the, the unbalanced and exaggerated levels of estrogen in the body, the muscles, the muscle cells of the body of the uterus are overstimulated and they proliferate. And a proliferation of cells ends up being a lump, a mass, a fibroid. That's all it is. And when women go through menopause and they drop their estrogen levels because they're over shut down, these things shrink away. But that doesn't fit into your plan. You want to have a baby. When you go through menopause, it's all over. It comes to having babies. So what are you going to do in the meantime? Well, you're going to reduce your estrogens. There is a, a treatment. And I, it's a pituitary hormone shot. I just can't remember what it is. But anyway, uh, you, you, some of you out there sitting there laughing at me, you know, because you know what it is. Anyway, there are injections that begin, be, can be given. Uh, Luteinizing releasing hormone, LRH, LRH shots. I think I got it right. Anyway, what you do is you give, it, give this shot and it keeps the pituitary gland from releasing, I believe it's luteinizing hormone, which stimulates the uterus, which are the ovaries, which produces estrogens. And so when you give this blocking shot hormone, what happens is the fibroids shrink. We know this. You know, it's been proved that you can give these shots and they go away or they shrink in size. But the problem is, is they grow back. And why do they grow back? Why don't you stop giving the shots? Because you're still eating a high estrogen producing diet. So, yeah, I've had, you know, women have their fibroids drastically shrink when they eat a low estrogen diet. That's our diet. But I've had some that do not. And you may need a myomectomy. But, you know, make sure you get a good doctor, the one that's done a lot of these. I, what I would do is I start shopping right now for doctors who are probably in the fertility business and find out who the best person to do this kind of uterine surgeon would be to, re to result in a, in a good outcome as far as pregnancy is concerned. Because, you know, there are a lot of hacks out there. I know I went to medical school with them and I trained with them. And they probably think the same of me. But I can warn you that there's a great difference in level of skill and treatment that you'll get when you move office to office. And it usually is a, a thing where, where, you know, as in any business, uh, it the, the, the competence of a practice flows down from the top. And so you're pretty sure, I'm pretty sure, and you should be too, when you confront the office staff, if you don't have a good experience, the problem goes a lot deeper than just the office staff. Anyway, shop around, find somebody who's competent and does a lot of this work. Change your diet. It's a different, you, you know, if you change your diet, uh, you'll go through menopause earlier, which I know doesn't fit in with your plans of having a baby. Do you think in this case, a water fast could help shrink or reduce fibroids? Well, for two reasons, it would. One is that uh, uh, you'd lose weight and fat cells, body fat cells make estrogen. And the other is you're not eating any food at all. So the stuff in the food that makes estrogens go up would be absent. So, but the problem with fasting, uh, AJ, is that it's only temporary. I mean, by definition, fasting is temporary. You'll die. You can't go on forever. 
If you don't know what to do after the fast, you will go back to the same state of sickness and obesity you ran before the fast. What you need is a program like True North, which teaches you a healthy diet before you leave. So you know how to not get back into trouble. Anyway, True North, the folks at True North have been my friends for 40 years and they provide an important service. And if you can't get better on a water fast, uh, likely I'm not gonna help you either. But if you wanna stay permanently well, you can't stay on a water fast. That's true. You gotta go to the Google diet, which is what they teach at True North. Absolutely. Uh, Mary wants to know, is it okay to rub olive oil on your face before bedtime? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know whether it's, it's, I don't know whether it helps the skin. That'd be a question that is way out of my expertise. I do know that oil is absorbed through the skin. Yeah, and you didn't you, you say once that, that, that when we were having the discussion, because you came on talking about essential fatty acids, and didn't you say once with a patient that I guess was was being tube fed, that they were able to absorb enough just by rubbing yeah. oil on the skin? Yeah, like a teaspoon on their forearm three times a week of safflower oil. Yeah, that's in my lecture on, on fats, which you and I did together. And anyway, yeah, uh, what what they this experiment was based on was a, uh, I think there were three subjects that had in, intestinal problems to the point where they couldn't be fed. And so they had to be fed through an IV needle where you can put sugar and protein and vitamins and minerals through the IV needle, but you can't put fat through it. Okay, so well, how are they gonna get the essential fats into the person's body? And what they did is they rubbed a little bit of safflower oil on the, on the forearm, like I think it was three times a week. And that was enough enough fat for the body to meet all its fatty acid needs. So the fat goes from your skin into your body. Could that be a problem? Probably not. I think it's more theoretical than anything else, but you know, I, you need to know that small detail to realize that when you put the fat, the olive oil on your skin, it goes someplace, it doesn't evaporate. Well, not very fast. It doesn't, what would happen to olive oil if you put it on the kitchen counter? How long would it stay there? It wouldn't it, go away. You'd have to clean it off. Yeah, right. So what happens when you put it on your skin? It's gone. Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Where'd that olive oil go? <laughs> <laughs> I guess it got absorbed somehow. I guess so. The fat you eat is the fat you wear. So that's one way to get fat in your body is to put it on your skin. Interesting. Uh, I, I, you know, I, and again, from a practical point of view, if you eat a healthy diet, get some exercise and some sunshine with a little olive oil on your skin to make it look smoother and a little less what dull, would that be a, a detriment to your happiness and longevity? I doubt it. But I could be proved, I could be proved wrong. Interesting. Here's a question on the ever popular topic of triglycerides from Carol. And she asks, if you're getting a moderate amount of exercise and eating a whole food plant-based diet, not drinking alcohol or eating oil, but your triglycerides are high, ranging between 220 and 360, should you be concerned? No, I don't think so. Those are pretty, pretty reasonable levels. Uh, in most labs, they say uh, it should be below 200. <clears throat> I see people with triglycerides of 500, 800, 1,000 on occasion. 
the the top top triglyceride level I saw was five thousand five hundred fifty eight, and this was somebody we took care of at St. Lila Hospital, and in twelve days they got down to a triglyceride of nine hundred, just to the diet. So uh, I think uh, you should just give it some time. Well, weight loss, the fat moves from your body fat into your blood. That's triglycerides. So that may be one reason for the slower reduction. Uh, exercise burns fat, burns triglycerides. So that would help. And just being with the program, giving your body a little time, it adjusts. And uh, the, other, the other couple of things to do is you avoid simple sugars, including fruit and fruit juice. Okay, simple sugars, including fruit and fruit juice to lower your triglycerides and especially alcohol. Alcohol has a tremendously negative effect on triglycerides. Cool. Well, she said she was avoiding alcohol. She didn't say about the other items, though. Okay. Anyway, I guess it's not that high a level, particularly if she's taken into account all the other possibilities. You shouldn't let... You shouldn't let this uh, this ringer, this uh, outlying factor, ruin your day. Because sometimes sometimes things are not exactly as they should be, or one thing is out of line, and you condemn your whole program because your cholesterol didn't come down to 150. And I know Dr. McDougall says it should be 150 or less. So I'm a total failure. Even though I lost 80 pounds, and I have a good bowel movement once or twice a day. My darn cholesterol didn't come down, so it ruined my whole program. No, it didn't. You know, a lot of things got better. And look at the whole total assessment of what's happened to you. You should be very proud of what your body did. You should be, you should be in awe as to what a miracle the human body is and its ability to heal. Constant abuse. 40 cigarettes a day. Third of a bottle of whiskey a day. You know, start out with bacon and eggs, move on to hot dogs wrapped in bacon, and then a thick, juicy steak at night. And people live. I know that didn't sound very appealing today. Not to Dr. us. Dr. McDougall, Montgomery is asking, triglycerides are blood fat, right? Is it fat in the blood? Is that what it is? And the way you should look at it is uh, if you put, in the old days, chicken soup in the refrigerator, to let it cool, a layer of fat foams on top. If I take your blood out and set the tube on a counter, even if you have normal triglycerides, the red blood cells, because they're heavier, they sink to the bottom. And at top, you have a layer of fat called triglycerides. And some people have such high triglycerides that it, when you're drawing the blood out of, their, out of their arm, the fat is coalescing and separating from the red blood cells. So you see a tube of half fat and half red blood cells. You haven't even taken the the needle out of the person's arm. <clears throat> so that's what it is. It's fat. You need a little fat, not much. So his question is then what, what is it about fruit and fruit juice, which have no fat that raises a person's triglycerides? Simple sugars, uh, they stimulate, uh, some people say particularly fructose. They stimulate uh, lipogenesis, which is the production of fat from sugar. I don't, I, I don't know any more details than that, except that that's what happens. Uh, if you, in experiments done old and new, what they show is that when you feed simple carbohydrates to people, uh, their triglycerides go up. The same number of calories as a complex carbohydrate, triglycerides are down. Same number of calories. 
simple sugars versus like potatoes. And in time, what happens, even on a simple high simple sugar diet, the triglycerides improve with time, particularly with weight loss. Remember, weight loss involves fat moving from fat cells into the bloodstream. Fat is fat, it's triglycerides. So, you know, when you fast, like for example, you go to True North and you fast overnight or fast for a week or two weeks, what happens is that fat comes out into your bloodstream and your triglycerides may well go up. And also things that were stored in the fat, because the fat is dissolving, those things are also released in the blood. So typically somebody who fasts, their uric acid, their cholesterol goes up because they're moving cholesterol and fat and uric acid and a bunch of other stuff from the storage depot, which is the fat cells into the bloodstream. So that's an argument that I've heard on occasion for why, why you shouldn't change your diet, particularly when you're pregnant. Because when you change your diet, you release all this stored up poison that's in your body fat. Well, the benefits from eating a healthy diet far, far, far outweigh any possible theoretical potential possibility of these poisons that are being released doing you harm. It's still a good decision to lose weight, even if you're about to become pregnant or are pregnant, if you're eating enough food. You can't go starving when you're pregnant. <laughs> but if you respond to your natural, normal appetite, and you eat a starch-based diet, you're going to have the best chance of having a healthy pregnancy and a good baby. Okay, thanks. Dr. McDougall, this question from Grace sounds very similar to one of the questions you answered last night on your show. And she says she's 5'2 and 140 pounds and suffered with hypoglycemia ever since she can remember, no matter what her weight was, even at 94. And she was taking a psychiatrist cocktail, but she's off the meds now. She's been eating a starch-based diet by default since she went vegan 15 years ago because there wasn't much vegan junk back then. And she says if she eats a fully starch-based meal, such as rice and veg, a few hours later, she feels shaky, sweaty, irritable, extreme hunger. And sometimes if she's in a supermarket, it's so bad, she has to grab sweets off the shelves and eat them before buying them or, or she'll faint. Her brother's a type one diabetic. She's not diabetic, but it seems her blood sugars are never stable. But when she adds tofu to a meal, a little more fat and protein, it seems to help. Do you know anything that might be causing this? Well, the first thing is, you know, I heard a mixed message. Uh, you know, once she's telling me she has hypoglycemia based on symptoms. And then I heard her say she checked her blood sugar. Well, if you're not checking your blood sugar, do so by, by a meter check it and make sure that your symptoms correlate with your blood sugar level. Because most times people feel the way that they do and their sugars are fine. It's not hypoglycemia. It's some other adverse reaction that's going on. <clears throat> if you think, as I talked about last night on the show, if you think you really have hypoglycemia, then you stop things that cause a large production of insulin after you eat them. Because insulin lowers blood sugar. You know that, of course. And if you have too much insulin, you lower blood sugar to hypoglycemic levels. Well, what causes uh, insulin levels to increase? It's refining the food. I gave you the example last night of the apple versus the applesauce versus the juice. So you want to eat all your foods whole. Uh, you want to eat frequently. You know, if you think, if you anticipate that you're going to have a, a poor feeling when you go to the supermarket, eat before you go. But I think you really need to find out whether you truly have hypoglycemia. 
if you haven't made a consistent correlation of symptoms with a sugar of, say, 40 or 30. Okay, thanks. Here's you know, I, I know people feel bad, AJ. I mean, they really, really feel bad. You know, they got tummy aches and they got joint pains and they're tired all the time. And, you know, arthritis here and there and headaches. And, you know, they really feel sick. And, and because we don't address the cause of the problem, which is the food, we come up with all kinds of fallacies about how to deal with this problem. Like, for example, in my early career, which goes back 55 years, if somebody came in with those complaints, we would we would accuse them of being neurotic and they would have been put on a tranquilizer. You know, and then and then when we got past the neurotic syndrome, it was a hypoglycemia. That's what we would blame it on. You know, and there are some other excuses that you know I would love to be able to remember for you, but you know, we get these excuses as to why people are sick when the real problem is the food. So I know you feel bad. Everybody eats a Western diet feels bad. But it's not because you're crazy or you have an emotional illness. Not most of you. It's not because of hypoglycemia. You know, it, it's, it's the food. But this person says she eats a healthy diet. Maybe we can make some modifications with her eating more frequently. Eating no, no damaged food and checking to make sure there's a correlation between symptoms and sugar, blood sugar, test it by a meter at the drugstore. You might need a prescription. You wouldn't think so, would you? I mean, what harm are you going to do with a blood sugar reading meter? But of course, it all has to do with profits. Here's an interesting question from Arthur. Dr. McDougall, what is your opinion about bananas? Is it a good idea to follow an eating plan that consists of mainly bananas? And is it safe to eat five or six bananas a day? I think it would be safe to eat five or six bananas a day, unless you were dealing with a triglyceride problem. Or, or you wanted to lose weight faster. Remember, the maximum weight loss program decreases fruit intake to zero to one or two a day. Probably one a day, most. Why? Because fruits are simple sugars, and uh, they stimulate more uh, more insulin production, which drives fat into fat cells. So, uh, but otherwise, if you're a healthy person, active, I, I can't imagine five bananas would hurt you. But that still leaves you know 70, 80 percent of your diet to be potatoes or rice or corn, which are not as much simple sugars as say. But, you know, bananas, of course, vary in their ripeness. You know, when bananas are green, they're very complex carbohydrate. And when they become ripe, and you notice by the taste, right? You know, the green bananas are kind of sour. And as you ripen them, they have the carbohydrates are broken down as simple sugars. And they become sweet. So you go from complex to simple sugars just by ripening. And that's what you like. If you like sweet, you're designed that way. Do you like your bananas ripe or less ripe? Because I actually like mine starchier than sweet. I prefer yeah. them when they're not so sweet. Well, I, I, I would have to default to the sweeter ones. That's part of my, my oatmeal every morning for breakfast is I, is I cut up a banana, 
along with my blueberries and my raspberries and my uh, almonds. Remember, I eat lots of almonds so that I can gain some weight. So that's my breakfast. I, and I, bananas, because they get ruined so quickly, they ripen on the shelf of the, in the kitchen shelf. They, you know, one day I look and they're yellow and the next day they're brown. No, it's crazy. You have to like have buy them almost every day because that you're right so quick. Well, let me tell you what I've done is I as I take the bananas when they are ripe enough, and for you that would be more green. I like them more yellowish, right? Maybe a touch of brown, and I cut them into halves, peel them of course, and I put them in a, a plastic bag, and I freeze them. And then every morning I get the banana out, and if I wait a couple of minutes, then it slices easily. If I take it right out of the freezer and try and slice it, I almost cut my thumb off. But there are little, little tricks you learn in fixing yourself breakfast. And that's that's my duty every day is to fix breakfast for Mary and I. <laughs> that's great. So I'm going to take a question from a live viewer named Ashley. And she said, could somebody gain weight off whole food starch or can anyone eat starches? My mom is pre-diabetic and she's been watching her carbs. She said that when she eats carbs like this, that she gains. Have you ever heard that question before, Dr. McDougall? Yeah. No. <laughs> yes. I look, folks. I mean, there are always exceptions out there, and of course, there are always liars and cheaters. You know, and you got to start by asking whether or not this person is really telling themselves or me the truth. And most of the time, it's a it's a misinformation that's going on, either because I failed to communicate properly what a starch based diet is. Or for one reason or another, they fail, fail to accept the truth or understand the truth. So uh, why do I say that no one becomes obese or overweight on a starch-based diet? It's because I've been alive for 76 years. And before 1980, there were no overweight people in China. Before 1980, the Chinese diet was 90% rice. I, I watched the Vietnamese conflict. I almost was involved. I was involved in it. But fortunately not in, in, in the killing fields. But uh, we used to watch newsreels from people in Vietnam. There'd be 100,000 people on town square. Nobody was overweight. Turn on the TV tonight. See a picture of, uh, of the North Koreans. I don't mean the guy in charge who eats the rich Western diet, who, who uh, ends up uh, making his, his salmon and steaks as rich as possible. You know that guy. I'm talking about the population that lives on rice and vegetables. They know all the way people. It used to be that way in Africa, too. Now, if you were in a situation where you had a lot of nuts and seeds and avocados available, and you picked these high-fat plant foods... You know, that's a lot of starch you're eating, but you're also eating a lot of oil. And I imagine in this case, you could be overweight. But I also would, would imagine you'd be pretty healthy. You know, and there are actually, there's actually one population that I, I had a paper on. It was from Africa, where there were overweight women. And, you know, I had to blame it on the nuts and seeds and other high-fat plant foods who were vegan. Well, we'll go on with that in a minute. And uh, these women, they were really healthy. They had no high blood pressure, high cholesterol, other health problems, but they were overweight. Which brings me to the whole story of a, uh, you really want to get into this, AJ. You know what I'm going to talk about? 
the fat I, vegan. I, it, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, you know, I have I have a lot of problems with uh, people are on the same side of the fence with me, and that is that we like the world to change their diet and they like the world to stop eating and killing animals. We're on the same side of the fence, but as far as efforts go and communication goes, I could be a lot of help to a lot of fat vegans. And I wrote an article, I wrote it about 20 years ago, called The Fat Vegan. And in the book, The Start Solution, there's a chapter called The Fat Vegan. Nobody's ever written me and said, I, I, I feel offended by that oxymoron. It's not an oxymoron. <laughs> there are a lot of fat vegans out there. In fact, half the vegan population, I would guess, is overweight because they eat junk. And I told the story, many of you heard it, but I'll, I'll, I like to repeat it is when I was a resident in internal medicine, my intern was a guy named Jeff, still lives in California. Last time, I don't know if he's alive anymore, but did last time I checked on him. He was my intern. He, he would not hurt any animal. I, I believe, I'm serious. If he saw a fly walking across his food, he would not swat it. He'd probably brush it away gently. Wore nylon belts, uh, plastic shoes, he was a pure vegan, Jeff was, but he was also greasy skinned and grossly overweight. And of course, all I had to do was delve into his vegan diet. He lives on potato chips and Coke, Coca-Cola. And, and that's what a whole bunch of uh, uh, people are on the same side of the fence are doing, is they've got great cause, animal welfare and the planet. But when they try and communicate the message to other folks, they look at this this person who's asking for uh, for them to make pretty dramatic changes, and they're looking at a person who looks unhealthy and overweight. And they kind of weigh things and say, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm concerned about the planet and animals, but if I have to look like you, be burdened like you, I'm not going to do it. So my position has been ever since I wrote this article is. Look, ladies and gentlemen, who already worked hard to change the place to a, a better planet, I said, look, you know, be a better communicator. Look good. Look healthy. Look strong. You know, so when they when they talk about vegans, they will talk about healthy people. Because that's what we present as a healthy, trim, strong person. Not an obese, greasy, sickly person telling you to to make altruistic uh, changes in your behavior. Anyway, I, I I don't think I've offended any fat vegans. I'm, I'm still waiting. You know, it's funny, Dr. McDougall, I was in Santa Rosa for a couple of weeks, as you know, and they happened to have their veg fest at the time, the Sonoma veg fest. And, you know, all they have there is they don't have anything that any of us could eat. It's all junk food. And they even told the doctor who was speaking not to mention anything about the health benefits of a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to talk. I, I had a radio show in uh, Santa Rosa, which is where you were. And I, I was on the radio six days a week. I was on the radio at noon. Five of those days of the week. And then I was on Sunday evening all over the state of California. So I had a big, big presence in uh, California, and I just said everything I say now. You know, car, car, interventional cardiologists ought to be driving taxis. They ought to put Elsie the cow in jail, along with the people who are lying to the public. I used to say that all the time, just like I do now. I haven't changed. I've just got a beard. 
But I used to do a radio show and I'd broadcast it from the state fair every year. And I would usually, my, my broadcasting tent was right in front of the dairy exhibit. And I'd start out the show every day saying that they ought to put a, a skull and crossbones over Elsie DeCow because she's killing citizens of California. And you, when we went through there, we did an actual news segment of trying to find something I could eat at the fair. And all, even though it was all vegan, you know, it was, it was, it was grease. That's I'm sure what you saw. You, there's nothing you could eat there. Maybe a baked potato. Or they didn't have that. It was mostly, you know, it was, it was a lot of cookies and, you know, just like food truck type food, you know. Popcorn with lots of oil on it and corn. And we used to, I think, ask for the corn without the butter. And we do vocate there. I wish. But right it's across not- the street, I, I wish I had known, you know, thought about, uh, about next time you go to Santa Rosa, right across the street from the state fair is a Mexican shop, a burrito shop uh, called El Patio. And uh, that was one of the probably 15 taquerias in North Bay that we had serving McDougal food. What they would do is they, they, they'd actually get a plaque from us that says that they understand what the McDougal diet consists of and that they're willing and able to provide it. We, Mary and I gave a plaque with a picture on it that they displayed. And you know most of these restaurants had uh, McDougal menus. We had over a hundred restaurants in the North Bay that served McDougal food. And so I would have gone to El Patio in Santa Rosa and had a McDougal burrito because they still serve them 25 years later. Still half the half the restaurants that served the McDougal menu are still still have the menu. Go to Gary Chu's, the Chinese place. They still have the McDougal menu. Go to Sonoma Taqueria. They still have the McDougal menu. You're going off to say, I'll take a number three McDougal burrito. That's great. Uh, Monique, who's watching live, says, is it important that everything be organic? And do you have to rinse white rice? And is it okay to eat white rice? Okay. Good questions. Uh, Mary and I eat organic because we think these pesticides and environmental chemicals are important. Not, Not just for us, but also for the farm workers. So by eating organic, you encourage people to do better farming practices. So we, we take the effort, even though it costs more, which is you know, a small issue in our family, we buy organic. Do we teach organic at the program? Not unless you ask. Because as uh, Jeff Novick tells the story about winning the race, is you've got to pick the, the hurdles that you want to get over and leave the other ones behind. And the hurdles you want to give over are giving up, giving up the animal foods and eating a starch-based diet. Does it need to be organic? Well, that would be best. But in the short term, for sure, it's not going to make any difference. You know, if you're worried about getting off your blood pressure or diabetic medication, you'll do that with organic or unorganic, whatever. You'll see the immediate benefits. Whether or not these pesticides will introduce breast cancer or prostate cancer, into your life later on, 20 years from now or 10 years from now, you know, I'm concerned about it. Uh, the question was white rice. Well, again, that's that's uh, not a deal breaker for me. Uh, I, I want you to be healthy and I'll sacrifice almost anything. And I've been known to say I'd take off all my clothes and stick carrots in my ears if you'd listen to me. But uh, 
I, I learned this when I was a sugar plantation doctor. Actually, I was a practicing in Kailua, Hawaii mostly, is people would come to see me, Chinese, Koreans, Vietnamese. And we'd start talking about the diet, and then I would talk to them about giving up the meat. That was okay. I talked about giving up the oil. That was fine. And then I talked to them about switching to brown rice, and they'd go, never. Poor people, dirty people eat brown rice. That's what the culture says. You know, the refined people, the rich people, they could afford to have white rice, whereas the peasants had to eat brown. So because of the social bias, the discrimination, uh, the prejudice, which is, of course, very inappropriate, uh, I couldn't get my typical Asian patient to eat brown rice. So what am I going to do? Eat white rice. Eat white rice. I mean, good grief, it ain't that bad. You still get well? Is it giving you the best chance? No, brown would be better. But you're in such big trouble now. I'll do anything to get you well. So yeah, we use we you know we we don't encourage it. But is it if that's 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 a deal breaker? Don't worry about it. Doctor McDougall, Halloween is this month. Are you going to be giving out candy? And if so, uh, we we don't we're we're not in a in a neighborhood like that anymore. But we did, you know, it's been a long time since we've been in such a neighborhood where kids would trick or treat around. I, I don't know, maybe we should make that a theme and involve Heather in it. You know, why don't you get Heather on for, to talk to her? She's got kids that just got out of the, the trick or treat stage. In fact, Ryan, who's 15, probably still gets a costume out and runs out. But I, I, I well, you can figure it out. Boxes of raisins, they're going to throw them away. You know that. I used to throw all my boxes of raisins away. <laughs> or I've, I've seen people give out toothbrushes. You know what somebody did? I used to give out stickers. Oh, Mary said she'd give out stickers, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, there you is know a question. Somebody... Sorry. Go, go ahead, JJ. I'll I was going to say, because I, I heard Mary's voice, and I was going to say there is a question from Mary about uh, mashed potatoes in a box where the only ingredient is dehydrated potatoes. Are they any good? Has she ever used them? Did you hear that question, Mary? Yeah, they're fine, and I, I don't use them except to thicken soup. She uses them to thicken soups. Otherwise, they're fine. It's a great idea using them as a soup thickener because they do sell them at Whole Foods, and literally it just says dehydrated potatoes on the box. Yeah. Getting back to Halloween, uh, you know, I joke sometimes because I, I want people to put this in perspective. Okay, this is not a religion. It's a tool that you can exercise as, as seriously as you want to. It's up to you. But, you know, take some of the pressure off. I always tell the story about how the grandkids, and I'm kind of running out of grandkids. They're getting pretty old. The grandkids, uh, they would go trick-or-treating and they would get Grandpa a big birth bar. Grandpa, that was the goal for, you know, I got seven grandkids. They're out there trying to find a great baby. They don't sell many baby birth bars anymore. Anyway, at the conference, the patrician conference, you know, on the 11th or 10th, I guess it was, uh, a woman brought for, for me a Babe Ruth bar package. And then it was a sweet potato, which I thought was kind of cute. Don't send me any Babe Ruth bars, folks. But Dr. McDougall, remember at the Plantrition Conference, I made a healthy version that almost tasted like it? 
No, I don't remember that, but you could send I, it. I gave it to you. It was at your table. I mean, I don't know if I can send it in dry ice now, but it was basically dates and, you know, peanuts and unsweetened chocolate. You you tasted it. You had a whole table of people and I gave you little samples. How could you yeah. forget? Oh, well, or maybe I'll, I'll find a way to get you some. So, uh, oh, um, they're asking if the dehydrated potatoes, Mary, could also help thicken a gravy. Could the dietary, uh, the dried potatoes thicken a gravy, Mary? She's not in the room. She's left. Okay, if she comes back. Um, Kristen says, can a person get enough sunlight when it's overcast in Portland so that they don't need to take a vitamin D supplement? Yes. You can get a sunburn with a cloudy sky. The ultraviolet spectrum that produces vitamin D from plant steroids is all you need. And uh, getting it through glass, I don't think works, but getting it through clouds works. You still get a considerable amount of radiation. You get sunburned. How many of you have not been sunburned on a cloudy day? I certainly have many times. And if you have a solar heater or a solar uh, panel on your home, you know, a lot of people do. And that's a cloudy day. They're still working. They're still producing hot water and electricity. Not as efficiently, but still do. And that brings me back to another point. People who are in Seattle and Portland and you know, Portland, Maine and Toronto and Detroit and so on, they'll they'll say, look, you know, I can't, I can't get enough vitamin D where I live. And there's actually people out there telling them they can't get enough vitamin D where they live. But excuse me. If there's not enough sunshine, why are the roofs all over the northern part of the United States? Why are they all littered with solar panels? You go along, you go around Portland, Seattle, you know, half the homes have solar panels on them. Why if there's no sunshine? There's loads of sunshine. The Great Bear Forest, the Great Bear Forest, this is a rainforest. One of the biggest rainforest in the world. Great Bear Forest. It starts uh, in Vancouver, Canada. It goes all the way up to the southern border of Alaska. That's how much sunshine is required to grow a, a rainforest at that latitude. And there's also, uh, there are environmental charts. I wouldn't want to try and relate to you what they say. But you see that even in northern latitudes, there's an awful lot of the right spectrum of light provided for growth of plants and production of vitamin D. You'd have to be in an extreme situation not to have enough, or you'd have to be a dark person. People of color uh, do not do well in Northern environments. White people do. Can you see the difference in the pigmentation and the, uh, Mary, there's a question for you. Pigmentation and the, um, and the sunlight correlation. Also, is it, can you use it to thicken gravy? So yeah, can, can, the, can the dehydrated potato flakes also be used to thicken a gravy? Yes. She said yes. Perfect. And somebody's asking, is it okay to bake potatoes in aluminum foil? Dr. McDougall, have you ever had a Wendy's baked potato? Yeah, it's been a while. But they're so Wendy's good. Like, they, they don't cook them in foil, but I don't know what they do. It's like the best baked potato I ever had. And they still serve them at Wendy's. They still do. And they're, I mean, that's the best, uh, you know, 
fast food that you can get when you're out and about and they have Wendy's almost everywhere, including airports. I'll get to yeah. them and they're, they're always let fluffy. They're always hot. I don't know how they do it. No, I, I, I probably haven't been to Wendy's in 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Never, never found any reason to go to one, but. So it's, it's not safe to cook them in foil, right? Well, we, we don't, uh, we don't cook anything that, where our food touches aluminum foil. Mary always used par parchment paper. And it really does, okay? And we had baked potatoes uh, this week already twice. And every time, without fail, she uses parchment paper and then wraps the baked potato here. This is a fan. That so that goes around the potato, even though there's a thick skin, I eat the skins. You know, if I have a good baked potato, I eat the skins. Put that on the foil, put the potato on that, wrap it up. That's all. And then, of course, you get the, the physical uh, properties of the aluminum foil, which kind of compresses everything. And you get the barrier of the parchment paper against the aluminum. Aluminum is poison. It causes brain damage, causes Alzheimer's disease. You know, I, I, I'm, I have no doubt that aluminum causes Alzheimer's. I, I've written two huge papers on it. I wrote a letter to the editor, which didn't get published on Alzheimer's last month. It did not get published. They were trying to sell Lequimbi, Lequimbi, which is a highly toxic uh, monoclonal antibody inhibitor and monoclonal antibody. I'll see what? Oh yeah, okay, sure. Thing. So she's just, I'm not you dressed. Should. I'm not dressed for the show, so I, I can't really. All right, that's okay. Was this last night? No, no, we, we, we Two nights ago. Two nights yeah. ago. All right, here it is. She, she always bakes an extra one for lunch. Here it is, right? Baked potato. Here's the parchment paper, yeah. and there's the foil. And do you, like is, it, is it at four hundred, Mary? Do you do it at four hundred for an hour? Yeah. It, does she poke? Does she do any pokes? No, no, no poke. Just stick it in there and roll it up and twist the end and put it on the shelf. We're going to try it that way. That sounds delicious. It's really good. And you know, she, and the skin is soft and you can eat it. But you also test the potato as time goes on because I know I asked you. Yeah, I like this. Squeeze it. Right. I go like this and I pinch it on the side to see whether it's soft. Uh, so it's about up. an hour, hour and 15, depending course, on the size of the potato. I like the potatoes like you do. I like them moist and fluffy. So she knows how, with her fingers, she can judge. They always turn out great. And we put a little sauce over the top and have uh, you know, broccoli or asparagus or green, green beans, I think we had the last time. But I get so satisfied with potatoes. You want to talk about feeling good afterwards. And scientific studies, uh, those done by Susan Holt. Susan Holt, you can look it up. Yeah, Dr. Susanna Holt, the, G, uh, the yeah, GI, the satiety yeah. uh, index. The satiety index, yeah. Shows the potatoes are the most satisfying of all the foods we eat. Susan, uh, Suzanne Holt. You had her on your show, didn't you? I have not been able to find her. I've been looking for her, but I, I can't find her. Uh, somebody's asking if Mary ever uses an air fryer. No, I don't think so. We you we have one. It's on the top shelf somewhere, but no, she doesn't use an uh, air fryer. You have, you don't use an air fryer yet, do you, Mary? Uh, 
Air fryer. Oh, that's that little, little oven on this counter. She uses an air fryer. She just bought one. Cool. Somebody's asking, do children need more protein? Uh, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. But children eat more food. The, the, the ideal diet for a child during the first years of life is human breast milk. You cannot argue against that. And human breast milk is 5% protein. Sweet potatoes are 6%. Potatoes are 10%. Oatmeal, 16%. Rice is 8%. All you need is 5% of your calories is protein. Well, you say, well, they need absolute more protein and the absolute amount they need is more. Well, sure it is. But the relative amount stays the same because what kids do to get more protein is they eat more food. When you're growing, you're hungry. When you're active, you're hungry. So when you're growing and you're active, you may need more protein, but you eat more food. And so you always, you always meet those needs. So you don't have to worry the food was designed correctly. The body was designed correctly. There's no such thing as protein deficiency. Nobody's ever described it. Nobody's ever seen it outside of starvation. You know, with starvation, everything deficiency. But there's no such thing as isolated protein deficiency based on any natural diet. So what are you worried about? You need enough protein? And we've talked about this. We've talked about how real scientists know that there's no such thing as protein deficiency. No one will argue otherwise because there's not a bit of shred of evidence that says otherwise. Just like with heart surgery, there's not a shred of evidence that says it works. Or colonoscopies, there's, well, there's a few shreds of evidence. If the randomized controlled trial is just published, shows colonoscopy doesn't save lives. I'm a scientist, okay? I believe in the scientific method. Uh, there's a lot of bad, bad observations out there by people who have biases that favor their financial interests. I don't have those financial interests. Or at least not so obvious. That's good. Well, Dr. McDougall, I want to respect your time. And what are you having for lunch? It's lunchtime in California. Oh, I don't know. What are we having last night's dinner for lunch? We had rice and vegetables and a, uh, a few few chunks of tofu. Is that was that regular tofu you had last night, Mary? Or... Yeah, but was that regular tofu or some special concentrated tofu? It was baked tofu. We had chunks of baked tofu in the rice dish. Nice. You can, you can air fry tofu, too. Yeah. Nice. It sounds great. AJ, it was really nice being with you. And uh, you know, don't underestimate the, the changes that you're causing. You're doing a great job getting wow. the information out to people. And the same thing with all you folks listening. Us, uh, unless you are in another camp uh, trying to champion another cause, you know, get with us. I, I think we have the truth. And I've got the evidence to support it. And so if you believe in what we teach, which is you're supposed to be healthy, look good and function well, and the problem's the food, then come along with us. You, you'll, it'll be a nice ride. You're, you're not going to be disappointed. Uh, we're going to win. Dr. McDougall, did I hear that you're going to the ACLM conference next month? Heather is. Nice. 
I, I, I have not been invited, so probably I won't go. But, but Heather is going uh, to put up a booth there to talk about. I don't think she's going to. We promoted Dr. McDougall's Right Foods, which is an accomplishment in itself. Well, we have a we have a, a food company that was established 30 years ago. It's in 6,000 stores across the country called Dr. McDougall's Right Foods. There are 30 different SKUs. In other words, soups and and stews and you know this is huge. This kind of success called Dr. McDougall's Right Foods. Anyway, she supported promoted their them at the plantation commerce. I don't think she's going to do that next time. It was just. <clears throat> too bulky, too much physical carrying around the food. But Heather will be there. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McDougall. It was a pleasure as always, Jeff AJ. And thank you again. Thank you for all listening. I, I like your shirt today. Is that one of your Patrick James? Uh, they're actually, um, no, this one's from Patrick Fredericks. Fredericks? Paul Fredericks. Paul Fredericks. Oh. It's a good place to buy shirts. You can also get them on Amazon at half price. So, so, so go to Amazon first. But Paul Fedrick's is the shirt that I like. Looks, Patrick James is my one. Looks great. With I him. love the, I love the ones that you you get for me too, AJ. Yep. Well, I've got got a few coming up. So the one I don't know why it's taking so long, but you'll get them soon. Thanks so much, Doctor McDougall. Let, let me just end by 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 your homework assignment now. Come on, folks. I asked you at the beginning to watch the uh, lecture that I gave for plantrition and to read the scientific paper that was published in Frontiers, the journal, scientific journal Frontiers. So read those two, discuss them with your friends and family, go out and, you know, give a sales pitch to at least 10 people every week. You know, you might catch one. Give it a try. It's fun. Right. All right. Thanks. You. I'll see you at the, end, the beginning of next month. Hey, thanks so much. Enjoy your lunch. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 11 a.m. tomorrow for Straight Talk with Dr. Doug Lyle. Take care, everyone.